This is Exchange the Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Susie Schur, co-head of the Global Financing Group in the Investment Banking Division. We'll talk to Susie about how companies are meeting their financing needs in this environment and the broader sentiment for banking activity in the latter half of the year. We'll also talk about recruiting diverse talent, as Susie also serves as co-chair of the firm-wide Summer Diversity Champions Council. Welcome to the program, Susie. Thanks, Jake. Happy to be here with you. So you help companies across all industries with their financing needs. It's been a busy, busy year. Sitting here mid-summer, what's the sentiment among clients in terms of the back half of the year, and how has the outlook changed since March? Well, Jake, it has been incredible. I mean, if you told me when I left the office on or about March 15th that sitting here in the first week of August, we would have had the biggest issuance years in a quarter in investment grade, in equities, a reopening of the high yield market, I would have told you that you were insane. And what's happened and what's changed is that as we rapidly moved into a global pandemic, so a global health crisis, a global economic crisis, companies realized that they needed to raise capital quickly. They needed to raise a lot of capital. And this is really the beautiful part. Governments around the world, both the fiscal government and central banks, realized they needed to provide support and an underpinning to the markets so that investors would be comfortable buying the securities that companies were selling because they were backstopped by both fiscal underpinning and monetary underpinning. And so that's sort of the story of what happened. And so in the period of March through, call it May into June, companies took, first they took crisis capital, both from the debt markets and the equity markets in the form of loans, in the form of bonds, in the form of common equity converts, you know, pipes from alternative investors in private format into public companies. And that gave this kind of underpinning into the market. Now, what has changed is the question you asked me, and what's the outlook? Really, what's changed is that companies, I don't want to say they've taken all the liquidity they needed because the virus is still out there, the economy is still quite fragile, but companies for now have taken all the capital liquidity they needed. And so what's going on in the markets today is that companies are starting to take what I would call play offense capital. And so in the debt markets, there are some companies that are financing, for example, AT&T last week, who had already financed in the debt markets in a huge way. They are financing to take capital for what comes next. In the equity markets, and you know, we can talk about this in a little bit in more detail, we've started to see the IPO market rebound because companies are saying, gee, maybe this is the time to create public currency for myself to set myself up to grow or grow through M&A. And so I think the back half of the year, I'm cautiously optimistic that we will continue to see companies who want to play offense have access to play offense capital in the debt and equity markets. And then as the pandemic and the health crisis and the economic crisis drags on, 
which, you know, I think we all believe it will until we have a vaccine, companies will have access to, if they need it, more crisis capital. And I think I'll pause there and and see what, what I haven't said that you're interested in talking about. All right. So you mentioned the extraordinary policy support, both monetary and fiscal policy. The Fed's programs were designed to inject liquidity into the marketplace. From your vantage point, how successful have those programs been in helping companies stay funded through this period of crisis? Those programs have been phenomenally successful. And in fact, probably the most critical part of the policies that impacted capital markets have been the programs by the U.S. Fed. You know, if you remember prior to the March 23rd credit facilities announcement, only the highest quality investment grade corporate borrowers had access to the market. So in those first couple of weeks, we saw, you know, the Disney's and the Walmart's of the world borrow, and we saw spreads gap out in a sharply negative feedback loop. But just by announcing the corporate credit facilities, this is even before they were enacted. They were literally just announced by policymakers. We saw a rapid expansion of market access to the full range of investment-grade companies, and then shortly followed by broad access and high yield. And in fact, even though they didn't tap the credit facilities available to fallen angels, Ford was able to raise, I think it was eight or nine billion of securities simply because the Fed had said, if fallen angels need access, they can access the facilities. And so, you know, we just talked about a bit, the period from mid-March to mid-June represented the heaviest three-month period in investment grade financing market in history by almost a factor of two. And I don't think it's an understatement to say that Fed policy truly enabled a very broad range of companies to build a bridge to a reopened economy and substantially fortify their balance sheets. So obviously different industries are being treated differently by the pandemic. What industries are you seeing have a relatively easier or more difficult time accessing capital in this environment? And what do you attribute those differences to? Sure. So starting with access to the equity markets um, in terms of easier, I think high growth companies with strong balance sheets, so sectors like tech, telecom, and subsectors within healthcare and consumer have been insulated from the direct impact of the pandemic. So for context, both the Goldman Sachs secular growth and stay-at-home custom equity baskets are up 50% year-to-date. So those are the companies that can access, easily access the equity markets. The more challenged credits are, I mean, it's fairly obvious, but cyclical, lower growth, highly levered assets. So sectors like energy, particularly given underperformance of oil, levered industrials, and any company impacted directly by the pandemic that can't provide a clear path forward given ongoing uncertainty. So the GS Global Health Risk Cyclicals custom equity baskets are down 27% year-to-date and then flat year-to-date respectively. And that's in the equity markets. In the bond markets, any company with investment-grade ratings has strong access. So when you see haves and have-nots, that's really in the leveraged finance market. So subsectors with COVID tailwinds um, like streaming services, packaged food, as well as more insulated and acyclical players like insurance brokerage, um, you know, automation and security software have outperformed. And then same for the leverage market, anybody, especially 
companies either have big negative effects from COVID, this is obvious, like airlines, cruise lines, gaming, leisure, their access will turn on and off depending on what's going on with the virus. And then very specifically, or not specifically to this crisis, but to any crisis, companies that are viewed as over-levered or with a lot of short-term maturities will have less access to the markets, even if they're in sectors that may not be as impacted by the pandemic. So, you know, it's hard to make predictions. The joke is especially about the future. But right now, while we're in the middle of it, do you get the sense that anything about capital markets has changed forever because of the pandemic and what we've learned? I think there's a lot that will have changed forever about the capital markets. And most of it will revolve around the use of technology and therefore making markets more efficient. So for example, we can now do an IPO completely virtually. Nobody's meeting in person. And that means we have had full virtual roadshows. We make documents that we used to make available in paper virtually. I think having better work from home setups, you know, more frequent usage with no stigma attached will be a big part of the capital markets. Greater use of, you know, VC technology, including hybrid meetings, meaning maybe you'll go to see some investors, but not all investors. And I think the biggest beneficiary will be this workflow concept. So we'll be able to do a lot more electronically. And I think that'll benefit all sectors of the markets. But, you know, we will still sell, I think, bonds and stocks in an analog way using voices, using discussions, using what we would call, you know, salespeople. But I I think we'll be able to do it a lot more efficiently. And, you know, I think people will probably spend a lot more time, you know, sort of at their desks rather than traveling around to talk to each other, especially during execution phase, which might be very good for the markets, right? If you don't have to go to a roadshow lunch, but you could do a Zoom roadshow you can do more research on the securities you want to buy. You can sell and trade more securities. So I think we all, I hope we'll all be a beneficiary from what we've learned. So you've mentioned a couple of times, Susie, that the IPO market has really picked up in recent weeks and in the past month or so. What kind of companies are coming to the IPO market? What does it look like and how is it different? We've seen a huge uptick in IPOs really since the start of July. So we're about a month into it. And just for context, Comparing the first half of 2019 with the first half of 2020, IPO issuance volumes for U.S. listed companies was down just 8% year over year, which is pretty incredible if you think about the situation we're in. Now, U.S. listed IPO volumes are up 18% versus 2019 at $52 billion, with $16 billion pricing in July alone across 35 offerings. So that's 31% of 2020 year-to-date IPOs priced in July. The word of the day or the acronym of the day is SPACs of the 35 offerings. Fully 14, 40% have been SPACs, totaling 8.8 billion. And David Costin just published a report. It's a 39-page report on SPAC commentary. So you can do a podcast with him next. I won't dig into that. And in addition, from a deal count perspective, the week of July 13th was the biggest week for IPOs since the start of the pandemic. And overall, risk appetite from the buy side has been notable, spanning a really diverse set of institutions, including mutual funds, pensions, sovereign wealth funds, long short hedge funds, 
and the IPO activity, as you would expect, is coming in the sectors that we talked about that have been less affected by COVID. So largely tech-driven, certain sectors of healthcare, and I think that continues. And just anecdotally, you know, the IPOs have, as a debt girl, I've learned a lot about the equity markets over the past couple of years. When in the financing group, that you can call your bank Tuesday night and say that you want to do a debt deal on Wednesday morning. Even if you wanted to do a debt IPO, you could call and say, we want to do a debt IPO. You could do it in a few weeks. Equity IPOs take much, much longer. And so right now, we might be working on IPOs for first quarter 2021. Anecdotally, over the last number of weeks, we've had many CEOs and CFOs call to say, how quickly can we accelerate? For those that were slated to be third quarter of 2020, we'll see some people come in August. And for those who are slated to be first quarter 2021, we see some folks trying to get into the market pre-election, which is pretty fascinating. So I don't think there's going to be any break for our equity capital markets team. August IPOs, that's a, that's a different kind of summer. Almost like an oxymoron. Yeah, exactly. So in addition to your financing role, Susie, you play a big role in hiring overall, but especially diverse hiring. I mentioned that you're co-chair of the Firmwide Summer Diversity Champions Council, and you have a lot of experience in the space. Reflect a little bit about what are the important things we can do to attract diverse talent. So one of the things we've been talking about a lot this summer, and I like this phrase, is we've been talking about avoiding thinking traps. See, when I started out in the business, we had a perception of what the person that we thought somebody who could be successful looked like. And that, no offense, Jake, was a straight white man. And while you can still be phenomenally successful in investment banking, if you're white and you're straight and you're male, I have been the beneficiary of the fact that we now understand not only can we be successful if we're women, as I am, or openly gay, as I am or Black or Latinx, but that having a diverse group of folks makes us even better. And I don't think it's a coincidence that we're having some of our best performance ever at the firm with our most diverse sales force or workforce ever. So what we can do to attract diverse individuals, first of all, is just make people understand that this is a great place to work because we believe in the wisdom of crowds and the success of diverse folks and think in a very expansive way about what it might take to be successful at Goldman. And then once we've hired Black people, Latinx people, LGBT folks into the firm, it is important also to think expansively about what somebody might not just look like, but seem like relative to what our expectation is of the middle part of the curve for the way people act. So I think we need to create an environment where people come in understanding that all different types of people can succeed. And I think one of the reasons I spend so much time on this, and somebody should calculate the number of hours I spend on Zoom calls this summer, the number one email I get after I have a Zoom call with our interns is like, wow, how did somebody like you, you know, succeed in this business and make it at Goldman Sachs? And it actually has nothing to do with me. It has to do with the environment we've created here. We are an environment that seeks people with unique experience and unique perspectives. And that's really what 
you know, inclusion is all about. So I don't think it's that much of a stretch for Goldman to become the employer of choice for people from all different, from Black people, Latinx people, LGBT people, women, people with disabilities, veterans, because that is the environment. We have nurtured folks like that for a long time, just not enough of them. So you mentioned these Zoom calls with interns, summer interns. What can interns do? They're all, everyone's working remotely, all our new hires, whether they're experienced hires, summer interns, our new analysts and associate classes. What can they do to build their networks and learn despite not being in the office? And what have you seen the experience so far? So I think it's important to connect with as many people as possible. And I actually really love the live connection and Zoom is as close as we get to live right now. And so, or Zoom or even FaceTime. And so we, for interns, they need to find like a new way to interact. So we tend to default to just calling people, but there's something about seeing each other as humans that not only has, not only did we think we needed it, but it's also become I think, intimate in a way that it wasn't before. And so interns should understand that and make that happen. So if you have a buddy or an assigned mentor or assigned coach, don't be afraid to get on the phone. I like seeing somebody actually in their home environment. I like that, Jake, even though this is a podcast, you and I are sitting here on Zoom. I like your red t-shirt. I hope you like that I wore my fresh white t-shirt. You had no idea that I wore my hair in a ponytail, but now you do. Maybe my kid Zoom bombs our call. And so for the interns, don't be afraid to create personal connection and intimacy with the people that you're meeting. In terms of the learning, that'll come from creating that, because guess what? Once you've established your Zoom intimacy with your analyst buddy in you know, healthcare investment banking, when you wanna ping her in two weeks because you're having a hard time building your model, you'll text her, which is a great instant gratification way of connecting somebody, and you'll say, hey, Susie, can we hop on the phone or can we FaceTime? while I'm trying to build this model. And it'll be like you're sitting there side by side. So find new ways to connect using the technology you have. It won't be as good as it is when we're all in the office together because that's like that's the essence of Goldman Sachs. That's the best way to interact. But we can find a second best way to interact that I would make the argument is, is pretty darn good. It certainly has broken down that sort of artificial distinction between our work self and our home self, because, you know, inevitably we're a little bit of both and it's quite visible these days. So, I mean, the pandemic's obviously been awful for a lot of people and still is, and the economic and health impacts are dramatic, but is there something, have you found any silver lining amidst this particular time and close with an optimistic note? Yeah. Listen, for me, the silver lining is, you know, two things one work and one family. The work thing I just mentioned, I've been at the firm for 23 years. I'm close to a lot of people. I've gotten close to more people in a really cool way. I didn't always know everybody's kids' names. I certainly didn't know where they lived. And so I really do feel, and I wouldn't know if they were going through something earth shattering in their lives, 
but I might not have known just how they were feeling. And I think just talking about some of the stuff that's going on in the world, whether that's the pandemic or systemic racism in like an intimate way, that's been a huge benefit. And then, you know, for me, I have four kids, 20, 18, 11, and eight. And I've loved all the time I've had with them. And I'm not like ashamed to say that. I've had more dinners with my four kids in the past five months than I think I had over like the weeknight dinners, I should say, because we always together on the weekends, than I think I had in the previous 20 years. And I love wandering down to the kitchen to you know, forage through the refrigerator and like, you know, seeing them in the middle of the day and talk to them about what I might be going on. And that's been like, that's been like a real blessing to be a more present parent. And I think coming out of this, like that's one of my own personal assignments is to stay as present as I can be. Because despite, you know, working more harder than I've ever worked in my life since I was young, I, my connection with my kids has just been amazing. So I'll leave you with that. Yeah, I can attest to the same as the father of four. I've spent more time watching them during the day. I used to see them in these little snippets in the morning, little snippets in the evening, and you get a fuller sense of their lives. So Susie, thanks so much for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Jake. It was great to catch up. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. And tune in later this week for our weekly markets update, where leaders across the firm provide a quick take on the latest in markets. This podcast was recorded on Monday, August 3rd in the year 2020. Thanks for listening. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.